After this, Luke has strategically placed the story of Jesus going to his hometown, Nazareth, where he launches his public mission. At a synagogue gathering, Jesus stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners, new sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. Now, along with the other Gospels, Jesus is presented here. He's the Messianic King bringing the good news of God's kingdom. But what Luke uniquely highlights are the social implications of Jesus' mission. So he brings freedom. The Greek word is aphesis. It literally means release, and it refers to the ancient Jewish practice of the year of Jubilee described in Leviticus 25. It's when all Israelite slaves were released, when people's debts were canceled, when land that was sold is returned back to families. It's all a symbolic reenactment of God's liberating justice and mercy. And then Jesus says that this good news of release is specifically for the poor. Now, in the Old Testament, the poor, or in Hebrew, ani, it's a much broader category than just people who don't have very much money. It refers also to people of low social status in their culture, like people with disabilities or women and children and the elderly. It also can include social outsiders, like people of other ethnic groups, or people whose poor life choices have placed them outside acceptable religious circles. And Jesus says that God's kingdom is especially good news for these people. So after this, Luke immediately puts in front of us a large block of stories, showing us what Jesus' good news for the poor looks like. It involves the healing of a bedridden sick woman, or a man who has a skin disease, or someone who's paralyzed. There are stories here also about Jesus welcoming into his community a tax collector, like Levi, who's not financially poor, but he is a social outsider. There's a story about Jesus forgiving a prostitute. Luke showing us how Jesus' kingdom brought restoration and reversal of people's whole life circumstances. He's expanding the circle of people who get invited in to discover the healing power of God's kingdom. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning I'm reading in Luke's Gospel in chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Levi in other Gospels is identified as Matthew. And don't ask me why Luke calls him Levi. I'm not smart enough to know. Um, No one told me. 
but we, we could focus just on the fact for a little bit um, that what it means that Matthew's a tax collector is he's going to be loathed and mistrusted by his fellow Jews and by the rest of the disciples. Remember, among Jesus' group of disciples, there's at least one member of the Zealots, and the Zealots are what we would today call a terrorist organization dedicated to overthrowing the Roman Empire and to killing all the Roman collaborators they can find, and tax collectors are absolutely Roman collaborators. So there's at least one person already following Jesus who, if he found Levi in a dark alley somewhere, would not hesitate to stab him. If you want to get a sense of how weird the, people, the, the group of people following Jesus is, just how unlikely it is, imagine it's like a group of friends and it's me, an ultra-Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and a member of Al-Qaeda hanging out in a bar. That is the disciples. That's who Jesus brings together to follow him. And now all the other disciples, when they follow Jesus, they've made some level of sacrifice. They've left their jobs behind. They um, leave their homes behind. They literally are following him around as he goes from town to town preaching. They left their families at home for unspecified lengths of time. But, but Matthew or Levi, however you want to call him, he does something a bit different. You know, if Peter were to decide that this whole following Jesus thing wasn't working out, he could just go back to his fishing boat. He has, he has marketable skills. He can go do that if he wants, right? If, if Levi were to decide he wants to go back, he's not able to go back. There is no way the Romans are going to let him come back to his tax booth after he left it in the middle of the day to go follow some weird guy who walked in from the wilderness. It's not going to happen. He is done. He has burnt his professional bridges. He is, in that sense, more fully committed to following Jesus than anyone else among the disciples at this point in time. Now that may change later on. But his decision, his sacrifice, kind of goes unnoticed until you put it in that context. It is utterly final. And you might think that someone who does that would be a little nervous or maybe would start to have second thoughts or doubts or get cold feet later on and would start to panic. But, but Levi throws a party and he invites all his tax collector friends to come hang out at the party with him. His enthusiasm for Jesus is so strong he can't contain himself. He has to throw this party to introduce everyone he knows to his new Lord, the man who changed his life. And Jesus shows up and he actually eats with tax collectors and sinners. And that is a big deal. To eat with someone in that culture is a symbol that you are fully accepting that person and that you are their friend. It's a much bigger deal than it would be in the modern world. We, we, you know, we'll eat with anybody, right? doesn't mean that much to us. They would not eat with anybody. They're only going to eat with people they know, who they are friends with, who they are family with. And these are not people that a good Jewish man is supposed to associate with. To actually take the step to eat with them is unthinkable. Eating with tax collectors makes Jesus ritually unclean. He is defiled just by eating with them. It's not just that the tax collectors are hated, although they are. It's not just that they're sinners who cheat people out of their money, although they do that. And it's that they are unclean. 
as a category of people. They're not allowed in the temple. They're not allowed in the synagogue. And if they're unclean, their house is unclean, their food is unclean, everything they touch becomes unclean. If you touch them or touch anything that they've touched, you become unclean. And it's actually even more than that. They're not just unclean. They are the oppressors. Jesus is offering grace to the oppressors. See, Romans did not tell tax collectors how much money to collect. They only told them how much money they had to send to Rome at the end of the year. And there was no instruction given on how much they were allowed to collect before that. There was no rule that said they had an upper limit on how much money they had to charge people. And within their giving community, they would have been quite literally the only person who knew what the official numbers were supposed to be. If you thought your tax collector was cheating out of money, there's no one else you can go to. No one. They're it. They have the sole discretion to tell you how much you have to pay them. And as long as they hit their official numbers from Rome at the end of the year, they can keep whatever is left over. And they absolutely abuse that privilege. These, these are not good people who Jesus is eating with. These are not the people who Jesus normally goes to. These are the people who are responsible for making the other people poor and oppressed. See, we are used to, to Jesus offering grace and mercy and healing to people we can sympathize with. And so we tend to insert that idea into all the stories, even about the tax collectors and the sinners. But see, that's not what's happening here. Jesus usually goes to the people on the margins of society who are there for reasons beyond their control. The, the sick people, the, the, the lepers, the people who are born with some sort of disability, the people who are excluded from the community, he goes to them and we sympathize with them because they didn't do anything to put themselves like that. This is not what's happening in this story. These are not men we can sympathize with. These are greedy men. These are men who are directly responsible for the poverty and economic ruin of their neighbors. They're like loan sharks or price gougers. They're people who are willingly and intentionally taking advantage of others to line their own pockets. We would all recognize that today as despicable. And Jesus seeks them out and he eats with them. That is costly grace. It's costly love. When he does that, he is taking all the hostility that the community would direct towards the tax collectors and he is redirecting it onto himself because he's the rabbi who's eating with them. And that is grace in action. When we talk about the grace of God, this is what we mean. When we talk about what we as Christians are supposed to do when we show grace, this is what we mean. That Jesus will befriend anyone who will welcome him in. That we then have to be willing to befriend, to bond with all the wrong kinds of people. Not just the people who, who aren't accepted by society or the people who are outcasts for reasons beyond their control or the people who have gotten a, a just bad luck in life or who have made bad choices. 
but even people who we know have intentionally chosen to do evil things. And it starts with the realization that we ourselves, at times, have intentionally chosen to do things that we knew were wrong. If they are unworthy and unclean and unwelcome, then technically so are we. And see, we know actually exactly what happens. See, not all the tax collectors are going to respond the way Levi does. They don't all get up and literally leave their booth behind and follow him. But we have examples in Scripture of what does happen because Luke gives us another story of a tax collector who's going to respond to Jesus. And the only reason why Luke includes this story is because he's giving us an example of what most of the tax collectors would have done. And so it starts in Luke 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came into the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus pledges to make restitution. He pledges to give to the poor, to pay back as much of what he stole as possible with interest. Which obviously means he's going to stop cheating people as well. He responds to Jesus' act of costly love with his own act of costly love. Grace bears a cost for the one giving it and the one receiving it. And it's not just now Zacchaeus who's saved, but now the man who had been causing economic ruin in that city is the one who's going to be working to restore all that he stole. Jesus' one act of grace and love is going to affect everyone in that community. Because, see, Jesus does more than just befriend the people. He doesn't just make them feel welcome and loved and accepted. He calls them to repentance. But this is really important. Look at how he does it. He doesn't sit down with the tax collectors and say, you guys are scumbags, you need to change. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even sit there and list all their sins and say, you've got to stop doing all of these things. He just eats with them. And, and just the power of the, uh, the cost to him of showing them that much love and that much grace inspires in them a desire to repent. And make no mistake about it, what Zacchaeus does, that is what repentance looks like. When we use the word repentance, it's not just about saying, yeah, I did this thing and it was wrong. 
is that desire to undo what you did, to do what you can to make it right. That's what it looks like. And this is what what he meant when he told the Pharisees that he didn't come for the righteous. He came for the sick because they are the ones who need a doctor. That's what happens. That's what healing looks like. The church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. Nowhere else is that going to be true. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And that means he came bringing grace and truth in equal measure. He extends his hand in friendship. He welcomes us in. He meets us where we are. Even if we are flat out evil, even if we're cheating people out of their money, even if we're oppressing people, there is no one who Jesus won't eat with. There is no such thing as a level of righteousness or purity that you have to achieve before you can be part of the church. In fact, his whole little remark at the end about not coming for the righteous is, is pure irony because he knows that the Pharisees are certain of their own righteousness, and he knows that actually their certainty of their own righteousness is exactly what makes them sinners too. It's only when we recognize our unrighteousness that we are open to the grace of Jesus. Jesus meets us where we are, and he loves us where we are, and that love costs him. The only proper, appropriate response to his acts of costly love is repentance, which is itself an act of costly love. See, most of us will fall into one of two groups. We will either think that we have no real need of Jesus, we're basically good people, we do our best, we certainly don't think of ourselves as sinners, and so Jesus becomes little more than a really good teacher or a good example to follow. And in all honesty, this is probably where most Christians in this part of the world fall. We don't always realize it. Sometimes this, this is going on almost on a subconscious level. And, so, and I say that because if you're hearing that thinking, well, that's not me, you might want to stop and think for a little bit because it might be you. I know at times it's me. But others feel the exact opposite. They, they feel so unworthy, so, in, so sinful, so impure, that they, they think Jesus can't possibly want anything to do with them. And so Jesus becomes little more than an angry, wrathful judge who just wants nothing more than to condemn us, and frankly, we'd rather avoid him or simply not believe in him if that's the case. But neither of those ideas fits with the Jesus of the Gospels. The whole Bible from Genesis right through to Revelation, it it reveals the dark depths of human nature. There is no one, not a single person, who is anywhere near as good as they think they are. That includes me. As soon as we start thinking that we are good and righteous and that we don't need the saving grace of Jesus, even if it's all happening on a, on a subconscious level, we haven't quite brought that to the fore yet, even then we're in deep trouble because it is harder for Jesus to reach us in that condition than any other. This is exactly what goes on with the Pharisees in these gospel stories. Once we've convinced ourselves that we're, 
we're good people, that we're not sinners, we become on some level hostile to the gospel. We resist all the places where the gospel would call us to change or to repent. We might even be infuriated by the suggestion that actually we are sinners in need of salvation. And at the same time, there is no one, absolutely no one, who Jesus will reject. There is no one too impure. There is no one so sinful or too depraved. There is no one who is unwelcome. Jesus seeks out all the wrong people to invite them to follow him. And very often, those are the people who are the most dedicated, the most passionate, and the most devout because they're the ones who have the best idea of just how much they need Jesus in the first place. He meets us where we are. He accepts us where we are. And he declares us righteous based on his merits, not ours. I'm not saved because I've done something to earn it. I'm not righteous because I live an especially holy life. You can ask my wife. I'm not very holy. (laughs) It's just the opposite. I am able to live a holy life because I have been declared righteous. We don't have to worry about whether or not we're good enough because it's irrelevant. No one is good enough. We don't have to worry about being perfect. It's irrelevant. No one is perfect. Jesus does call us to repent from our sins, to change our lives, but only after he offers us his saving grace. First, Jesus saves us. First, Jesus meets us. First, Jesus loves us. Then he leads us down the paths of righteousness. And that's not just what he does for us. It's how he models what we are to do for others. First, we welcome them. First, we love them. We meet them where they're at. We don't expect anyone to change before we love them. We offer them love, and that love is what creates the space for the Holy Spirit to move. In other words, love goes first. And then, to quote Paul, love is patient and it's kind. When Jesus calls us to repentance, he understands that we are flawed, we're weak. True change takes time and commitment. He understands that we're going to fail and we'll succumb to temptation. And when we do, he is right there, ready to welcome us back in, to forgive us, to move on with us. And that then is what we are called to do with others, to forgive, to welcome, and to move on. Because love goes first and it's patient, and it's kind. This is the love Jesus shows to the tax collectors and the sinners. And this is what it takes for us to be the gospel to the wrong kinds of people. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.